Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. And today's topic is Christ-centered preaching. Most of you know that we're in the book of Acts and we're looking at the history of the early church. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 13, verse 24 to 52, whole heap of verses. So I'm going to start reading from now. Verse 24. Before his coming, John had proclaimed the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. I'm reading from the ESV. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among, among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says, also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Verse 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But... He whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these, might be told, these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath... Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, 
they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. We have been following the exciting adventures of Paul and Barnabas who have been dispatched from their home church where? In Syrian Antioch. Let's have a look at our map. Syrian Antioch, which is over on the right-hand side, if you can see it. They left the church at Antioch there, went down to the, the coast at Seleucia, got on a boat, Traveled over to Salamis, which is on the east coast of Cyprus, then traveled across the mainland about 100 miles to the west coast to a city called Paphos. From there, they sailed up the, through the Mediterranean Sea to a place called Perga, which is in Pamphylia, modern day Antalya, which is from where John Mark, remember, abandoned them and went back to Jerusalem. Then from Perga, they, they, they traveled up through the mountains to Antioch. But this is not Antioch, Syria. This is Antioch or Pisidian Antioch. And it's in a place called Southeast Galatia. Now, Southeast Galatia. Guess which book or letter Paul will write when he arrives back home in Antioch at the end of this, his first missionary journey. The book of Galatians. I would encourage you to read it, particularly as we're going through this portion of Acts. Because as you read it, it will make so much more sense. Particularly when we get to chapter 15. When the big issue is what? Anybody know the big issue, the big hot potato in Acts 15? Shame on you. Circumcision. Circumcision. So read Galatians with that in mind. I say shame on you. Shame on me. Um, forgive me. Read it over the next couple of weeks. Now, last week, as we looked at verses 14 through to 23, we titled that section, if you remember, God-Centered Preaching. Why? During his message at the synagogue in this place called Pisidian Antioch, Paul makes reference to Saul once, Samuel once, David twice, Israel 12 times, yet we hear 
God the Father mentioned at least 22 times. It's a shame last week wasn't this week because then we could have said God the Father, Father's Day, is the focus. But that was last week. God was at the heart of the message. Hence the title, God-Centered Preaching. Now, this is Paul's first recorded message, which was very similar to the message preached by Peter in Acts 2, and then another message he preached in Acts 3, and very similar to a message that Stephen preached in Acts chapter 7. All three preachers recounting the history of Israel. Summarizing Genesis, Exodus, Joshua, Judges, and first and second Samuel. Now it's a very long sermon, so much so that we couldn't finish it last week. And where the first portion of the message focused on God the Father, this second section will focus on who? The Lord Jesus. Hence the title for this week's message, Christ centered preaching. Which seems like a contradiction, right? I mean, is it God-centered preaching or is it Christ-centered preaching? Like, Robert, make your mind up. Well, it's both. And this may sound like a contradiction, but it's actually a paradox. Now, we're going to come back to the issue of contradiction and paradox later. In Paul's message, he makes over 20 references to the Father, we saw last week. Yet, we see at least 25 references to the Lord Jesus. And... As I mentioned, that's if you count the personal pronouns. Now, let's resume where we left off in verse 23. Speaking of David, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel what? Who? A savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now, when did he promise it? Look at Psalm 132, verse 11 and 12. The Lord swore to David a sure oath. I mean, if you know, God is a man, is not a man that he should lie. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. You hear the emphasis? One of the sons of your body, speaking to David, I will set on your throne. Verse 12, if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Which is actually a quote from 2 Samuel chapter 7. The prophet speaking to David said, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers. You know what that means? When he dies, I will raise up your offspring after you. Heavy. You who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now who is it talking about? In the context it's actually talking about Solomon. Right? Verse 13 says, he shall build a house. Because remember David wanted to build a house for the Lord but the Lord said, nah, you've got too much blood on your hands. He says, your son's going to do it. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the what? The throne of his kingdom, how long for? Forever. See, it's not so much on the son, meaning Solomon, that is the issue, but it's the throne that is the issue. It's the throne that will be established. How long for? Forever. 
So through this man's, David's offspring, through the line of David, and we're going to come back to David in a minute, through the line of David from the, who came from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, guess what? Both Mary and Joseph, that's Jesus' earthly parent and step-parent, they both came from the line of David. Matthew shows us Joseph's family line, and Luke shows us Mary's family line, if you read the beginning of those two books. And to add to the list of prophetically fulfilled predictions, look at verse 24. Check it. Before his coming. Before his coming. John had proclaimed the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. That is John the baptizer, who the prophet Malachi said would what? What did Malachi say about John the Baptist in terms of what he would do? He would prepare the way of the Lord. Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3, sorry, probably feel like "Mm -mm, it's coming like this bible school this morning or this afternoon even matthew chapter 3 which is a quote from isaiah 40 verse 3 says for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet isaiah when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord and make his paths straight then it says in malachi chapter 3 verse 1 behold Listen to the pronouns, the personal pronouns. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before who? Before me. Who is speaking? God is speaking. And who is going to prepare the way? John. And who does John prepare the way for? Jesus. But I thought you said God was speaking. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. I'm going to just let that hang for a second. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Check it. The Lord is coming, says the Lord. Now, if you don't believe in the Trinity or the triunity of God, that statement makes no sense. In other words, check it. The Lord is coming, says the Lord, or God is coming, says God. So back to Acts chapter 13. I know the World Cup is not stimulating your imagination, right? So... Let's see if we can stir up some of the grey matter this afternoon. Back to Acts 13, verse 24. Unless you support a team like... Are there any teams that are shining, though? Ghana. Ghana, Ghana. I'm that Ghana boy. All right. All right. Now... Before Jesus came, we just saw, 
before Jesus came, his coming was predicted. Look at verse 25 of Acts 13. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am in response to those who thought that he was the one to come? Well, he was, but he wasn't the one that they thought he was, right? What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. John was saying to his hearers, if you esteem me to be the coming one, you'd be right, but you'd be wrong. See, the coming one, apart from me, the one who comes to prepare the way for the coming one, the coming one, he's distinct from and higher than me. He's higher than I. I'm, I'm not even worthy to, to be his slave, to untie his shoes. That's what the slaves used to do. Now remember, this is Paul preaching to a synagogue full of Jews and God-fearers. And he's breaking it down. Verse 26. Brothers, he says. Because he's talking to Jews. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham. And those among you who fear God. These are the God-fearers, right? We talked about them last week. To us. Hear that inclusive term. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. Now, the Jewish leaders back in Jerusalem hadn't allowed Stephen to get this far when he was preaching. When he preached this message to them, they stoned him. They got violent and they killed him just like they did with Jesus. So Paul's doing really well. Verse 27, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, that is the one who clearly and definitively fulfilled all of these prophecies and a whole lot more. Nor did they understand the utterances of the prophets. See, they could see, but they were blind. They didn't understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. I mean, these predictions, they heard every single week. And instead of recognizing the prophecies, what did they do? This is scary. Instead of recognizing the prophecies, they fulfilled them by condemning him. Do you realize that you can be fighting against God and think that you're serving him? And... God will give you little hints along the way. But the question is, are you listening? Whether in here or on the internet via MP3. Are you listening? Like Paul said last week in verse 16. Listen. See, are you paying attention or are you on your own agenda? Or are you caught up? Fulfilling someone else's agenda. Do you remember the religious leaders at the trial of Jesus egging and goading the crowd? 
nudging people next to them saying, all right, you look ready? Everybody, after three, one, two, three, crucify him. See, are you following someone who's leading you astray, but you just can't see it? Or are you leading others astray? Well, maybe God in his mercy is dropping a hint for you today, like Pilate, remember? But I find no fault with this man. You're talking about crucify him. I find no fault with him. He said it about three times. That should have echoed in the corridors of the mind of those who were persecuting Jesus. And that's God in his mercy trying trying to redirect their wicked hearts. Verse 28, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, imagine, if only they'd taken a look at the book, at the scrolls, listened every Sabbath, they actually ended up doing what the scriptures had contained And they didn't even realize it. After they did all that was written of him, scourged and crucified him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. Let me say that again. But God raised him from the dead. See, there's quite a few things they weren't expecting to happen. The things that they themselves were doing and not realizing, but then also what God was going to do as a result. God raised him from the dead. Now, who is the him that God raised? Jesus Christ. God raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 31. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. That is his 11 close disciples who are now his apostles. Plus the other 109 possibly who were in the upper room, remember. Not forgetting the 500 witnesses that saw Jesus after his resurrection over a 40-day period in 1 Corinthians 15. At the time of, of writing, at the time of communicating this, I should say, The people were well aware of what Paul was saying because it had happened right then in their lifetime. And Paul, who saw the risen Jesus at his conversion in Acts chapter 9, communicates that we are his witnesses. Verse 32. And we, that is Paul and Barnabas specifically, bring you the good news. That what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. See, it's fulfillment of prophecy. Now, it may not be to us. But what Paul was communicating here is groundbreaking. The promise that Israel had been waiting for was now fulfilled. 
in their lifetime. The promised seed had now been realized, literally. We're talking about thousands of years in waiting. The promised seed has now been realized. Galatians chapter 3 verse 16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. Remember, read Galatians. Can you see how this reverberates in terms of the context? Paul says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. This is all fresh in Paul's mind because he's just preached it to them. He's just appreciated this. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, which is, he does not say and to offsprings plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. See, Jesus is the promised seed. He is the Messiah. He is the King of Israel, King of the world, as a matter of fact. As also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Not to be confused with, you are my beloved son. You are my begotten son. I have begotten you. Now, look at Psalm 2. Verse 1 says, this is the psalm that Paul quotes from. Why do the nations rage? And you've got to remember, any time a verse is quoted, particularly in synagogue, you only need to quote a part of the portion and people immediately know what you're talking about. Just like when Jesus was on the cross. Remember, remember what he said from Psalm 22? What did he say? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now you might say, well, why would Jesus say something like that? Surely he knows. But he was saying it for a reason. And as soon as he said that, everybody would have thought of hmm, Psalm 22. And check it, it's in Psalm 22. It says, they pierced my hands and my feet. So when... When Paul quotes Psalm 2 and says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, immediately they would think, oh, Psalm 2. Listen to what it says. Why do you, God speaking, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Good question, Lord. Yet they're going to do it anyway. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together foolishly against the Lord and against his anointed. Ah, see again, God speaking about God. You can't get away from the Trinity. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image. Why do they take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed? His, the word is Messiah in Hebrew or Christ in Greek. It's the same meaning. The anointed one. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, they're not ruling over us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them, and he ain't laughing now. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, it's like, you can do what you want to do, but as for me, I have set my king. Notice that word king, and it's in Psalm 2. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, we ain't got time. It is commonly held among commentators that this today refers to the resurrection, which may be unusual for you to hear. It was to me. As opposed to his birth or his baptism. It refers to that moment when Christ was brought back from the dead. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 18 says, He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That is the, that is the first one to be born or brought forth from the dead. Verse 16, for by him, all things are created. So you've got to remember that Jesus was born, but Jesus didn't exist when he was born. Or I should say, Jesus existed before he was born. Remember, he said, I came. You and me can't say that. We never come. Like, like we came from somewhere. When we were born, that's, that was our beginning. But when Jesus was born, that was not his beginning. He came and then he says, you know what? I'm leaving now and I'm going back to the Father. Now we can't say that. We are going to the Father. But we ain't going back because we never came from there. We never, in, order, in order for us to go back, we'd have to say that it's from there we came, but we didn't. See? For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. There's so much to Jesus who we call Lord. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Oh my gosh. See, we ought, to, we ought to serve Christ. Or should I say, we need to get a real good clear picture of who Christ is because it will help us to serve him. You know what I mean? Everybody would be jumping up and down and getting all excited if, what's the brother who says, you're fired? Alan Sugar. If Alan Sugar phones you, you get a phone call that says, you know what, tomorrow morning you've, you have an appointment with Alan Sugar at Sugar Towers or wherever it is his, his business place is, right? <laughs> and tomorrow morning a limo is coming to collect you. Monday morning, 9 o'clock. If you knew that limo was coming to pick you up and it's Alan Sugar and forevermore... As you, as, as you get so excited about reading the email, it goes on to say, Mr. Sugar has had his eye on you for the past two years, and he loves the way that you function. Now, regardless of how you function, he loves the way you function. And he adores you and desires for you to work for him for the next five years, paying you 200 grand a year. Now, would you need much encouragement to give up your job? Would you, would you need someone to, would you need your mum to have to wake you up tomorrow morning? 
I don't think so. You set your Blackberry. You probably won't even sleep tonight. You probably run and go a blue water because it's late night shopping or whatever. Go get some, spend a little money that you got on a suit. And what am I saying? I'm saying you would be, you'd be enamored. You'd be so excited. You wouldn't be able to sleep on Twitter, on Facebook, telling the whole world. What am I saying? I'm saying that is the truth. You and me both would get mad excited about that. And yet, when we talk about serving Jesus, I mean, is there any comparison between Jesus and Alan Sugar? And you can tell him that I said that. (laughs) Is there any comparison between the two? Yet, we can't get out of bed for Jesus. People, we've got to be cranking you up to do something for Jesus. It'd be like, oh, well, you know, maybe, and I'll get back to you. It's all right. I can tell you why. You have a very, very, very low Christology. You really, you really don't, you really, if I ask you about Alan Sugar, you can tell me about him more than I know. If I ask you about Jesus and who he is, check it. For by him, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, the glorious church. He is the beginning, my point is, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the what? The firstborn of the dead. And look what is associated with that. And the what? Ruler of the kings on the earth. In other words, he's the king of kings. You know, any, you know anyone who's big and famous and well-known, past, present, or future? Name them. Well, you know what? Whoever they are, they're subservient to Jesus because he's the king of all kings. And look, remember I said to you, know it when we read it, just like in Psalm 2. See, and he is a lovely king. Look at the last part of the verse. To him who loves us. Alan Sugar don't love you. He don't love me. Yet you're ready to, we were ready to bow down to him. Yes, sir. No, sir. You see them when they're in the board, boardroom. No, 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 Lord Sugar. No. <laughs> what happened to, what happened to Lord Jesus? See, 
to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That is, he gave his life for us. He's a wonderful king. Back to Acts 13, and it continues, verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. That is, that which takes place at death, right? Corruption or decomposition. He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. We just read them. Verse 35, therefore he says also in another psalm, I mean, Paul is killing them with evidence to support everything that he's saying from the Old Testament, from the scriptures. My man's saying, you know what? This ain't even based on my testimony. I'm telling you about something that has happened before your very eyes. You know that this has happened, even though you live over here, you're in Pisidia, and it happened in Jerusalem. You know about it. And he's saying, apart from knowing that it's reality, it's supported by Old Testament prophecy. He says, I've spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says, in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. It's all over the Old Testament. It's actually, this is another psalm, and it's Psalm 16, and that's not all that it says. Remember, one line opens up a whole line of thought to the hearer. But we don't know Psalm 16, do we? So Psalm 16, verse 10 says, in addition to what he just said, it says, for you will not abandon my soul in Sheol, which is Hebrew for the grave. Check it. You're not going to let your holy one see corruption. Hmm. Wow, you said it over there also in Psalm 2. Ooh, Psalm 16. You're not going to abandon his soul in Sheol, which is the grave. That means, hmm, your Messiah, your king, that seed, you're not going to allow him to stay dead. You won't leave my body in the ground or let your Holy One see corruption. Verse 36 of our text, Acts 13. For David, huh? For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep or he died. And he was laid with his fathers in his grave and he saw corruption, his body decomposed. Verse 37 But he whom God raised up, speaking of Jesus, David's son, David's offspring, the true king of Israel, the anointed one, the Messiah, the only begotten, verse 37, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Why? Because his body wasn't left in the grave long enough. God raised him from the dead. Verse 38 Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who what? Believes. Not some. Everyone 
who believes, that is, it, that is trusts in, adheres to, and relies on him, is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And right there, something in the atmosphere in this synagogue changes. For many who have wanted to know God, but were confused by the Old Testament rituals and laws and temple and priests and sacrifices and offerings. For those who have wanted to know God, but were confused, the lights came on. Many who thought they knew God were challenged. Because they may have been a part of the party who actually fulfilled the prophecies in killing Jesus, or at least they may have known someone from Jerusalem who was responsible, part of the Sanhedrin. In this synagogue, for many whose hearts were open, understanding dawned. The offer of forgiveness is made through faith in Jesus. And one who wouldn't expect anything? You can't expect anything different from the writer of the book of Romans and the book of Galatians. Righteousness and forgiveness are to be found only in this man, Christ Jesus. It is by him that everyone who believes is justified. Paul says that the law is incomplete. And cannot save. It shows us that we need to be saved. It is by faith in Christ and not legal obedience or law keeping that one is saved. Now this is good news. Forgiveness of sin is now freely available. And it's that same message that we should preach today. What a message. And I'd really love to go back in time and be a fly on the wall in this synagogue as Paul concludes now his message. I wonder how long he preached for. Don't answer that. (laughs) Yet, there's a problem. Whenever the good news is preached to the Jews, there's always drama. So Paul, preempting that, adds a note of warning. Verse 40, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And he quotes Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5, verse 41, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. Verse 42, As they went out, The people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. I suspect that was a sign that the message was effective. Verse 43, and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, that's proselytes and possibly God-fearers, they followed Paul and Barnabas who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the law of Moses... No, to continue in the grace of God. 
In Timothy, it talks about being strong in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. You know, very often, when we fall short because we don't keep the law, we beat ourselves up, don't we? And what we're saying really is, well, it's good to to feel the conviction of our sinfulness. But if the conviction of our sinfulness causes us to stay away from God and stay away from his people, that's not conviction. That's condemnation. And very often we have not only God's law, meaning the Ten Commandments, but we also set up our own laws. Well, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for an hour every single morning at five o'clock. And you might do it tomorrow and Tuesday. And then the rest of the week you flop. And then you feel like, oh God, I'm, I've, I keep letting you down, Lord. I'm so shabby. And Now it's true, we are. We are shabby. But you see, if you're living your life based on, well, you know what? If today I read my Bible, if today I, I tarried for an hour... God loves me and I feel good about myself. Well, you feel good about yourself, not because God loves you. You feel good about yourself because you kept a law. But, you know, you, we can't keep that up. And then sometimes, like, these, like the religious um, leaders of Jesus' time, what they did was they were, trying to, they were trying to do that. But they knew they couldn't. But you know what they did? They pretended that they were. And that's where, that's, where, that's where you and I will end up. You'll either keep flopping and keep failing and keep on the floor, can't pick yourself up. I'm, I'm such a wretch, I'm a worm. And it's true. And you live your life like that on a regular basis, depending on how strong your willpower is. Or you end up faking it and making out like you're on it spiritually. But, you know, we're not called to live like that. Because then you're trying to be strong on the basis of keeping the law. When God desires that we be strong in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. That we be strong in the grace of God. That is, Lord, I flopped again, you know, Lord. I've done that thing that I said I'd never do again a million times. But thank you for the cross. Thank you for Christ Jesus, my Savior, and that He died for me and that He shed His blood for me. And on that basis, on that basis, you forgive me. The Bible says a righteous man will fall seven times, but God will raise him up again. You don't have to, you, you, might, have, you might need to visit the floor. Because th- there's, there's some people that, you know, I mean, they don't feel no conviction. They sin left, right, and center and don't business. Don't care. No, you need to visit the floor and spend a little bit of time down there beneath the foot of the cross. And I'm saying, but once you receive God's forgiveness and, and your attitude now is, Lord, I don't want to go there no more. You receive his forgiveness and you get up and you, and you move along. And you, and, and you keep going, being strengthened by his grace, by his forgiveness, by his mercy.
in the verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. I'm not surprised. But in the midst of all this good news, here comes the bad news. Verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, check it. You can see where they're at. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. See, now they need to, they need to, they need to get on the floor. They need to repent. They need to repent. They're hard-hearted. They're stiff-necked. And all they care about is how come these brothers just breezing? We've been here serving faithfully. These brothers just breezing. Who is this Paul and um, what's his name? Barnabas. And all the people are flocking to them. And we've been here serving the people. Who does that sound like? Doesn't that sound like the brother who was in the house when the prodigal left? Be like, I've been serving you. Look how long I've been here serving you. And this br- and and him takes all your money and lives riotously, sleeping with prostitutes and drinking alizé and out bunning green. And he comes and he comes back. And you put gold ring on his finger, put cloak on his, and you killed the fatted calf, the one that I, that I had my eye on. You killed a fatted calf, and you throw a party for him. Can you, can you hear the, sim, uh, the similarity? Filled with jealousy. Instead of saying, wow, what a message. Did you hear what my man said? That changes everything that we knew about the Old Testament. Can you believe it? Psalm 2, Psalm 16. <gasps> he was talking about... Mm-mm. The only thing they're filled with is jealousy. Just like the Jews who murdered Jesus, who stoned Stephen... And they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. See, they can't argue on the basis of the text. So what do they do? They get personal. They, they can't deal with... Paul is like a kung fu expert in the word of God. He'd be like, it. So they're not going to try and challenge him on the word. So they get personal and they start saying personal things about him. They don't even know him. Well, he comes from Tarsus, which ain't really far from where we are. So maybe they did. I don't know. But I know they get personal. And they begin to attack. Not the issue, but they attack Paul. And you know what? Some things never change. And there's nothing new under the sun. The same thing happens today. Verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. You should be privileged. Stand up there chatting about You want to point the finger at us and you want to say hurtful things about us? You should be grateful. I just recounted the whole of your history. And all you can do is safe. It's all right. You see, we shared it with you, but you don't want to hear it. It's all right. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're going to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. And oh my gosh, it's like Paul just takes out another knife in terms of the word of God and sticks it in and twists the blade as he quotes another scripture from the Old Testament. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, says Paul, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Quoting Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this... (laughs) They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. (laughs) 
And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You'd be like, you've got these stone-faced, stiff-necked, hard-hearted, religious, supposed to be representing God. Standing there, sour. And you've got the Gentiles. Who, some of them never, never served God one day in their whole life. Rejoicing over the message. And it says, as many, as, as many of them, and I suspect some of the Jews, as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Again, as I said earlier, we have another example of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Some, as noted, reject the word of God. Now, whose fault is it that they reject? It's their own fault. God will hold them responsible for rejecting the Savior. And he couldn't have painted it more clear. And they reject it. Well, God will hold them accountable on that day. Then, some accept the word of God. Right? And who's responsible for that? That is those who accept. God is. And herein lies the paradox. Last week we saw saw from verse 17 that God chose the patriarchs. Remember that? And everybody said, Amen. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God chose them. I mean, Abraham had a a horrible character. Lie? You know what I'm saying? I mean, Jacob, oh my gosh, from the womb. Remember, he was twins with his brother Esau. Esau come out the womb before. He's grabbing up Esau's foot, trying to pull him back from the womb. And you read the history of Jacob. His name means heel grabber. He's the brother. Don't, if, you, if you're running a race against Jacob and he gets in front of you, watch out. Because he would trip you over. Grab your heel. And we, you, read, through the, read through Genesis about Jacob. Horrible brother. Until God wrestles with him. Wrestles him down to the ground. And puts his hip out of joint. See? God chose them. And because of their goodness. Because they never had none. God chose them. God's sovereign choice. We also mentioned last week, John 15, 16. When Jesus said to his disciples something very similar. You didn't choose me. Hey. I chose you. In the same way, we see again God choosing disciples here in Acts chapter 13, verse 48. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. See, acceptance on the part of some, but then again, rejection on the part of others. Verse 50, but the Jews incited, went further, look. The Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. Sorry, I have to finish the chapter. These antagonists, they have friends in high places. And they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Verse 51, but you know what? They shook the dust off their feet against them and they went to Iconium. 
I'm just going to show you where Iconium is on the map. And two more sentences and we're finished. You can see where they are now at the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. Just move this out of the way. They're going to travel from Antioch and they're going to go down into the mainland, down to a place that's called Iconium. And this is where we will pick up next time. Verse 52. And the disciples were filled with discouragement. They were downtrodden and disillusioned. Verse 52 doesn't say that. It says, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. May that be our testimony as we continue to work in the same way that these great men started. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promises that you made to Abraham that went on to be fulfilled in his life through his son Isaac, the son of promise, that was a picture of the genuine son of promise. As he, as he went down through the line through David, Abraham's son, further down the line through David's lineage, to your beloved son, to the only begotten son, Christ Jesus, the one who came and became the seed, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed king, but at the same time, he was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And we thank you for faithfully fulfilling your promise. We look back 2,000 years and that promise still holds true today. That promise made to Abraham that his seed would be like the stars of the sky and like the sand on the seashore. And that that would extend beyond the Jews biologically to those who would be grafted in to us, the Gentiles. And we thank you because Jesus made it all possible. Based on his sacrifice, we now can be brought in to the family of Abraham. We can now become Abraham's seed through Christ Jesus. And not just Abraham's seed, but members of your family. And today, as... On Father's Day, we thank you that you've adopted us. And we are now your children just as much as all those that we've mentioned. And we've been placed in the beloved. Father, I pray for those who are here and are in Christ, but don't enjoy their relationship. They don't enjoy that which has been purchased. Lord, I pray that you'd give them a, a really wonderful revelation of who Jesus is. Who their king is. Who their brother is. Who they're connected to in terms of family. And Lord, I, I pray that you'd encourage 
their hearts, encourage our hearts. And that we would serve you on the basis of grace. That is your goodness towards us who are undeserving. Yet you've given it to us anyway. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that we'd be overwhelmed with that. And we would just relish that and live in that. And and we'd rejoice in that. And then Lord, I pray for those who are outside of the covenant of that you made with Abraham that don't know you that may even be in the category of the hard hearted, the stiff necked who have been resisting and grieving your spirit Lord if you have to do with them what you did with this man who's preaching in this synagogue if you have to do with them what you've done to Paul I pray that you do it Lord so that they would stop kicking against the pricks and injuring their very own lives Father, that they would repent. Father, that they would do as it says in verse 16, that they would listen to what you are saying by your spirit. Lord, I pray that you give them ears to hear. That you'd open up the eyes of their understanding in order that they might repent, turn away from their sins and receive that forgiveness that comes through the Savior. In Jesus' name we pray.